0: Taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders.
1: I've sniffed some true 10 workouts in my life. I'm pretty darn happy when I get in a good seven or an eight. What I tell you is in the general population, most people have never found a five, just because they have so many distractions.
0: People living inspiring lives and motivating others.
1: The goal is to keep the goal as the goal. And I think people get really caught up in doing, you know, silly things that don't contribute to their end.
0: Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, a show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. And this week we are in for a real treat. Before we begin, if you're new to the show, welcome. We appreciate you joining us today on Inspiring Lives Thank you for hitting the download button and welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Eric Cressy is a highly sought-after coach for athletes at all levels from juniors in youth sport right through to the professionals and the Olympic ranks. He's essentially the go-to guy for anyone who wants to achieve at their highest level of performance. Eric is perhaps best known for his extensive work with baseball players with more than 100 professional players traveling to train with him at his off-sites during the off-season. An accomplished author, Eric has authored over 500 published articles and he's also put out five books and co-created four DVD sets that have all sold in over 60 countries across the globe. Now, he was a competitive power lifter, holding several state, national, and world records. So what you're going to hear from is a guy who walks the talk. He's a guy who's recognized as a coach who can jump, sprint, and lift alongside the best athletes that he trains in order to push them to their highest levels and keep them healthy in the process. And he joins us today on the show. Eric, welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Just to start us off, Eric, when when you think about the Eric Cressy brand, how would you describe your brand?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a little bit of a moving target um, because I think when you first start out um, in any industry, you're just trying to build a successful business. And I, I think we see a lot of people that put the uh, the carriage in front of the horse. And um, you know, for us, we started out trying to trying to build a successful business, and what we realized was that. You know, when we looked at our caller ID in the office, a lot of times our we were seeing even more calls from nationwide area codes as opposed to just local area codes. So we realized without even knowing it that we had accidentally kind of built something with more, more national and international appeal. So we we kind of created this brand that now has to be managed across two facilities and with a strong internet presence. So I, I think it's changed very dramatically from you know, trying to deliver the, the highest quality baseball specific training to, to people in our geographic area to now being, you know, kind of an industry thought leader in terms of delivering that same service on a larger scale to more athletes. But just as importantly, we're we're trying to teach the teachers where we're we're educating other professionals about how to, you know, care for multi million dollar arms and you know, and twelve year old kids who just want to stay healthy and enjoy the sport as well. So it's it's very much a moving target.
0: We're gonna talk about the journey of building the company and what you do, I guess it's interesting for people, all of us go through a stage where we may consider doing our own thing, whether it be a side hustle or building a business as you've done. And the name of the company always comes up as one of the things to think about. What will I call my business? And you have built your business around you as a brand. You now have two facilities and you now have a lot of guys working for you. Was that a good move for you? Would you do that again to use your name in the brand?
1: I actually say it's the single biggest mistake I've made in business. Um, I, I say it <laughs> almost every week when people ask us. If I could go back in time, that would be the, the absolute first thing I would change. Um, and what happened was I was a one-man show when we first got going. Um, I was actually an independent contractor. And for the first nine months or so I was in Boston, it was just Eric Cressy. And we ha- we got some momentum, trained some local athletes, and things really took off and you know so we capitalized on that and allowed us to get off the ground quicker. Um, but the thing I never realized is that when you, when you start a new business you've got to think about putting the systems in place that're going to make it successful when it's a hundred times as big right um, and so for us I, I you know by putting my name on the business instantly, I devalued the abilities of all of our employees for the rest of history, whether that's a you know, administrative side of things and a business director, you know, when people call the office, well, why am I not talking to Eric? You know, that there would be that side of things. And then all of our coaches you know, are wildly proficient and in, in majority of cases they're better at me in a specific skill set but because their name is an Eric Cressy they're automatically perceived as inferior so a, as a result of putting our name on the business or my name on the business we've had to work really really hard to build up the rest of the people on the team not because they need to be built up but because we had to create that per, higher perception of value um, because I had actually devalued them by accident it's, it's not fair because they're, they're amazingly qualified people that work with me every day
0: and if I talk about your identity just for a second. If I take you back, it's the day after Thanksgiving and your twin daughters were born, Black Friday. (laughs) And that day, your wife said, you need to go work out (laughs) because your wife knows and said that if you don't work out, I know what you're like. And I guess just as as an off rant from that, Eric, you've built your brand and your identity around the workout. And my question is do you think and it's such a such an important part of you as a man obviously you as a husband you in the workplace do you think we should in some way all have an identity where working out actually is part of our identity that it's that strong that others should say you need to go do it because it just seems with the, the health and wellness of the world right now, it's being pushed aside because it's not a priority. In some ways, should it become part of our identity where it's a, yeah. a non negotiable?
1: Uh, you, know, you know, I think you could actually make the claim for it, you know, because I, I think, you know, certainly I'm, I'm twisted, you know, from my powerlifting background. I mean, I went like 9 years without missing a planned training session and you know our babies were born on black friday morning and on sunday like you said my wife told me like get out of this hospital go to the gym work out i know how you get so you know that in of itself you know is is probably a little bit extreme taking those few days off um there there's there's two answers to that question the first thing i would say is that um i really ascribe to something Cheryl Sandberg said she she gave an interview i think it was like entrepreneur.com or wherever it was she made a comment where there are five things, right? There's family, there's fitness, there's sleep, there's career, and there is, uh, what's the fifth one? Um, I'm losing my mind. So family, friends, career, fitness, and sleep are the five, and you have to pick three, and, and I've found that to be entirely true. And for me, like obviously, family is first. Um, you know, I, I take fitness very seriously. It's something that's part of my day. And then, you know, obviously, career has been important to me. So, so friends and and you know, and uh, the sleep aspect of the things are the ones that I struggle with. Most of our friends come through the gym, through my work in baseball, so I can kind of maybe double dip a little bit and get three and a half. But what I think is really, really significant about that discussion that that leads to my second point is, it's the only thing in that mix that has a trickle down fit affect to everything else is the fitness one you know like certainly you know if you sleep better you're probably going to be more cordial towards your family and your friends um, you know I see fitness is as, as, you know something that you, you take advantage of so that you can you can be a better husband you can be a better dad you can you can have more life experiences with your friends and, and all of that so things you can you can have robust enough health to be able to you know just support career initiatives and things like that so you know sleep and fitness kind of you know, they, they tend to have that little bit of a trickle-down effect that I don't know you get the same thing from from the rest of it.
0: It's interesting when you think back to your powerlifting career and you just said nine, nine odd years, never missed a workout. And I have heard people say that you have built a great reputation around work ethic. And you hear people saying, yes, you can have your dreams. Yeah, but you've got to work hard. Yeah, you've got to put in. You've got to put the hours in. You hear all that. But in listening to you being interviewed and your writing, I guess what I'm after is can you really qualify what that means? Because we hear it talked about a lot, but what does in the Eric Cressy world, having a work ethic, explain actually how do we do that? What does that look like in your world?
1: Yeah. The first thing I would say is I'm I'm not sure that it's been celebrated in the past. My business partner kind of jokes about it, but I'm not sure it, it should always be celebrated, right? Sometimes that's just a, it's a fundamental flaw where I can't turn it off. You know, my, my brain gets going and, you know, those are the, the times where you wake up at two in the morning and are staring off into blackness, thinking about all the things that you want to do or have to do. Um, so I think sometimes work ethic is, is maybe over celebrated. Um, and there's, there's certainly shortcomings in that regard, but, um, you know, I, I'm not sure it's as easy to quantify as people realize because I I know that different people I've interacted with who have been extremely successful work much, much differently. Like, you know, John Berardi, um, who, who built up Precision Nutrition, is a real close friend. And, you know, John has been wildly successful. And he's probably the guy that has, like, kind of like this concept of balance figured out the best of the people i know right john you know is a guy who can really stratify his day so he's a you know a great dad and husband but at the same time he's building this you know you know nine figure company that's been very very successful so like I, I'm not good at that, but I still feel like we've been successful. I, I can work towards that, but um, you know, most of the people I see are really successful, and, and the people I aspire to work towards are the ones that that kind of compartmentalize things. You know, they're not just always on all the time, and that's where work ethic. They're more the people that they set that deadlines, they they rigidly adhere to them, and you know, they they quarantine their schedule so that they don't get caught up in in, in Monday and stuff from day to day that can distract them from them. So. What I can tell you, though, is is where I've learned the most in the context of work ethic is when we had twins. So I'll give you an example. Um, Our daughters were born November 28, 2014. Um, What a lot of people don't know about that is we actually opened our new gym on November second, two thousand fourteen. So we had a a brand new gym that was twenty six days old when we had those kids. You know, so I moved my wife to Florida at seven months pregnant, and you know, we jumped into just the world of craziness. And you know, my mother in law bailed us out like crazy with helping out and stuff like that. But my days when our twins were born with a brand new facility was, you know, basically I would be up at five a.m. To do as much work as I could um, between you know five and seven thirty, um, I'd be helping out with the babies from you know basically seven thirty until eight thirty or so. Then I'd go into the facility, I'd train athletes all the way through until you know three thirty to four in the afternoon. Um, I usually get a quick lift in myself, and then I'd go home and I'd wash my hands and shower and you know basically eat dinner while holding a baby. And then basically I would sleep from eight to midnight. And between 12 and five, I was on like baby assistant duty. So it was literally like this crazy 24 hour cycle. It was a pot of coffee in the morning and an energy drink every afternoon at three o'clock. Not something I would, I would recommend to folks. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that you know, that, that life is horrible for the first 12 weeks. You love your kids, but it's, it's not sustainable. And, you know, eventually you start getting sick every week. And, you know, you have to figure out how to recalibrate. But what I learned after the fact from that was I looked back on the time before we had twins, and I was not efficient at all. I was a hard worker, but I was not a smart worker. You don't you don't realize how much time you spend just goofing around on Facebook, or like how many times you get caught up in like one YouTube video becomes twenty-seven YouTube videos, or just how much time you spend just wasting on on just like emails. You know, um, you know, getting stuck like know, scrolling through Instagram or whatever it may be. So that's the biggest change for me since I had our kids is I always look at like, hey, somebody wants to argue with me on the internet. And when I was 23, I'd be like, jump right in and do it. Nowadays I literally look and I say, is this argument more important than my daughter's? And the answer is always no. It's it's so you can't let people bait you into you know, unproductive things. And I look at like the people in our industry are being really successful. You look at, you know, obviously I mentioned Berardi, but, you know, even beyond that, look at what Mark Verstegen has built at Exos or, you know, any of those other like really, really successful people in any industry. Like, you know, Bill Gates is not like arguing on the internet. You know, it's just not productive or worth it.
0: Do you think that's in your mind what separates the pro from the Joe in your mind? Because you are interacting with a lot of people, in in all aspects of life, who are achieving great things, is that is that the primary thing? Are there other things that separate the pro from the Joe?
1: I, I think that's a big one. You know, it's a Dan John quote. It's like, the goal is to keep the goal as the goal. Um, and I think people get really caught up in doing you know silly things that don't contribute to their end and you know a a lot of times like you you go on vacation you come back and you've got you know 150 emails to get through and then you kind of realize that you know 50 of them are completely non-essential um you know and and you can you can plow through stuff like that or like that so I, i think there's that um you no, know, but I think it all comes back to to just like it's it's processes. Like if you if you set up good systems of you know how to do things, like our business would fail miserably if every one of our clients tried to text me to schedule their sessions. But if they work through our front desk and you know the scheduling systems that we have in place, it flows incredibly smoothly. So a lot of times it's just about getting other people to appreciate what those systems are, what the boundaries you've drawn are, um, so that you can you can kind of plan accordingly.
0: If I take you back to. Something that you said that I found really fascinating that you, you said you lived next door to a church and the car park next to that church as a kid growing up had a green patch and that became the playground. And what's really ironic is that from that patch of grass in your district, it became a hotbed for coaching talent, which is really quite strange that not just for players from a district, but also for coaching talent. When you think back to that time of your growing up and the fact that you do so much coaching today. What was a lesson that you remember as a kid taking from that playground that you still to this day remember and use?
1: Absolutely, yes. It's interesting. So certainly my small geographic radius where I grew up with um, has produced a, a bunch of college coaches across many disciplines, ranging from football to lacrosse to strength and conditioning. But also our, our high school is, is kind of a geographic segment that, that has produced tons and tons of people. Um, right, there's like several dozen coaches that have come out of my hometown. Um, so the, for, there were two things that I would say is, is, one, all those people that were at that churchyard were good athletes before they were good coaches. And I think they were good athletes because they never specialized, right? There wasn't just one sport being played. It was football, it was wiffle ball, it was soccer, it was everything imaginable. Like we played rugby, we played frisbee. Um, So there was was an insane amount of variety. and, And we know that randomized practice from a long-term motor learning retention standpoint, tends to outperform block practice. So we didn't have seasons where like, hey, we're going to play football every day for the next four months. Like it was just, it was straight chaos every day until our parents yelled at us to come in for dinner. And, and sure enough, from that you know, school, there were multiple All-Americans in lacrosse. We had you know guys that are, I mean, like Nick Myers, who's the head lacrosse coach at, at Ohio State, Nick Rupp, Two houses away from me, so like those things were were very compelling. I think we all got out, we all challenged each other, and um, so there was that side of things. The other thing, though, I, I would say is is after even those early you know young ages, where we are all outside just playing in the churchyard next door. Um, we all went to the same high school, and and I, I think back to it, we had a we had an athletic trainer at our high school, Arlene Bear, um, who was was someone who just was like super cordial. She was, you know, she was kind of like one of the gang where she always made the training room like a fun place to be. It wasn't like rehab purgatory or, you know, and she wasn't cranky. She was always like unconditionally positive. And she created an environment where like you literally had a bunch of people that kind of just like even when we weren't hurt, we'd go hang out in the training room, which was attached to the weight room, and you know that without even realizing it, she was nurturing this passion for for sports medicine and sports performance, um, and, and and serving as a role model, someone who was unconditionally positive in our life, and and really creating a culture that that probably made us all think like, man, this is something cool. I'd love to do this for life. Um, and so, sure enough, you know, years later, and this is interesting because it, it we weren't all in the same class. Like this is over the course of, like Amanda Kimball is a strength coach for the University of Connecticut women's basketball. She's won multiple national championships. She was two years ahead of me. You know, there are some that are, are years behind me. But I I look back and try to figure out what was the commonality. But um, it was interesting. We all went to different universities. There are people that went to Springfield, the University of Southern Maine. I went to Yukon and the University of New England. Like. We went all over the places, but all wound up kind of in the same field. So I think, you know, the big lessons are don't specialize early, have random practice, you know, let kids experience chaos and have fun with it. And then later on, just create an amazing culture, you know, that that makes people enthusiastic about, you know, um, an area in which they feel like they can make a big difference.
0: Man, that's gold. To start that piece off, you talked about the kids that came to that playground, most of them had talent. They were talented athletes when they arrived at the playground, then they generalized random play. Is that where it started? If you think back, is that where you started to think about follow your talents and not follow your passion?
1: Yeah. You know, I I don't think I actually thought about it back then. I mean, what's funny about that is I, I say all those things. And I mean, I was a I was a, a good athlete, not a great athlete. And you know, I was, I was all state in tennis and I got played, recruited to play soccer in college at the division three level. Like I wasn't an elite athlete by any stretch of the imagination in our industry. Like there's a lot of people who are like, man, if I had only had this strength conditioning when I was younger, I would have been a division one <laughs> athlete. I would have been pro. i like, I would have still been fantastically mediocre. I, I might've been a D two athlete instead of a D three athlete. But, um, what was interesting was I, di- I didn't go to college initially thinking I was going to go into this this field of health and human performance. I actually went thinking I was going to be an accountant. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't until a couple years into my college degree that I realized that you know, I was basically dealing with some health problems. I had a bumped shoulder and lost a lot of weight, so I needed to, to get healthy. And you know, I realized that was I was definitely more passionate about it. But what I what I came to realize was that in the process of of taking care of my own shoulder and doing a lot of self-research and just training and training and training, I had actually built up a substantial amount of career capital. I had, you know, a knowledge that was unique um that, you know, made this an avenue I could pursue, particularly with it being so early in my career. I didn't just say, well, I like to exercise. It would be cool to open a gym. And that's the mistake I think a lot of people make, like following your edge or sorry, following your passion just really doesn't work. You know, it's it's much more about following your marketable skills.
0: If I take you back even further to that school ground, that church ground, and maybe even around that, you, you've you said you grew up in a household that valued reading and writing. And you seem to be a guy who that is one of your priorities is to continue to learn and then share that surely that time back then also had a huge impact on your discipline and desire and hunger for learning do you did that influence you Eric? Oh no doubt about
1: it um, you know I'm, and I've spoken about it before so my mother is actually still the principal of the high school where I went to um, and before she did that she she taught English and was the curriculum coordinator for for an extended period of time so um, i I grew up in schools for to a large degree i mean i would I would wake up and go to school with my mom and you know, kill time for 45 to 60 minutes, hanging out with high school kids before I went to the bus stop, which I would get on in front of the high school where she worked. Um, so I, you know, I walked into her classroom every day and, you know, you you would see the, the quotes from various books that were on the wall. You'd be around the classics. Um, but what you, without even realizing it, like, you know, kids are impressionable, you know, whether in a good way or a bad way. Right. So I walked in and what did I see for my entire like childhood, a bunch of kids who were coming in early for extra help, you know, like who were, who were in her room at seven 30 in the morning, because, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't understand something from Shakespeare or something like that. So I saw people working really, really hard. Um, you know, I, I grew to kind of appreciate being around the classics and doing a lot of reading. And it was, You know whether I did was doing it intentionally or not. It was it was something that was imprinted on me. And you know I I think about all the different places I could have been during those hours. Right, I could have been sitting at home watching cartoons or doing something like that. Instead, I was in an academic environment. And you know, you know whether that was the reason or not. Like I always thought I I chased um, academic challenges. You know, like when I was a senior in high school, like I, I I sought out the you know the hardest English course because I wanted someone. Who would really pick apart my writing and make me a better writer and my my professor you know Mr. Foster, I still talk to him uh, my senior year was probably the most impactful person in my career from a writing standpoint like he he could have just you know let me you know coast by during a senior year when I was already you know accepted to college and was already ranked pretty high in my class and instead he he tore my writing apart to make it better and you know, I, I just look back at all those years and I was probably preparing myself to kind of embrace that challenge. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of our athletes is, you know, we deal with a lot of really, really good baseball players who, you know, they're, they're the best player in the history of their town. They've never struggled. But the second they get to professional baseball, like they, they automatically are surrounded by a bunch of other elite athletes and it can be a really daunting experience. So I always tell people like you need to not just like, the cognitive failure is out there. You need to go out and find it because every one of those failures is a massive like learning experience.
0: Something which I'm really fascinated by, Eric, is I don't hear any, if not many, coaches ever talk about truly understanding how their athlete or the person they're coaching processes new learnings. And I've heard you say a number of times, that if you're working with somebody that needs to be shown, you're happy to show them, or somebody who needs to they are more auditory, you're happy to talk them through it. Or someone who needs to feel it, a kinesthetic learner, you will show them and help them through the motion. And that's all, it's, it's called learning styles or accelerated learning. And that, that's the, I guess, the, the science behind it. But I've heard you say that a number of times. And what I want to know is, is that just intuitive or is that something you have learned and learned how to identify it in that person you're coaching.
1: I think it's both. Um, so the first thing I would say is it's something I'm trying to identify as I take somebody through an evaluation. Um, meaning, you know, when I when I say to them when we're in the middle of like a table assessment, um, you know, let's let's get on all fours on top of the table. And and then we look to see what happens, right? Most people will, 90% of the time, someone's going to go to hands and knees. Other times, people are just going to look at me like I have two heads. And so for me, that's a quick way to assess, like, how quickly do these people process visual things, whereas would have been better if I just demonstrated what was actually going to happen. So in real time, I'm definitely trying to process that because I know that if I can streamline my coaching cues to optimize, you know, in the context of their learning uh, you know, kind of approach, then I know I can be more efficient as a coach. And and when you're more efficient as a coach, what does that do? A, it gets people their their results faster. But B, more importantly, it gives you way more opportunities to build rapport. Because if you're not wasting time throwing a million coaching cues at them, chances are you're spending more time building rapport, asking about their family, you know, cracking jokes, whatever it is, making them comfortable in the environment. But also you're not making them feel like they're idiots. Um, you know, where you give them a coaching cue, they don't get it. They feel in, incompetent early on in the training process, we're really trying to about we're trying to establish rapport and make them feel like they're successful so we can build that relationship. But what I would tell you though is there are times when you can assume things. And and I have this conversation with our our interns, right? So a lot of times we'll have a like a new intern that'll come in. And they'll have their first interaction with a professional athlete. And let's say that's a professional athlete that's been training with us for five or six years, who has an amazingly, you know, uh, you know, comprehensive, you know, ability to take on coaching cues. And they already know 98% of the exercises they would have to encounter. The worst thing that new intern can do is like say, well, here's the exercise we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Then they demonstrate it while talking you know, and then the athlete gets in there, they put their hands on them, try to expose them. So they've exposed them to auditory, visual, and kinesthetic cues all at once. When really all you had to do was be like, hey, we're doing a split stance, low cable row, show me what you got. And then they jump in there and it's 99% perfect. Maybe there's like a subtle change that needs to happen that you could have done because it's not going to be loaded in an environment where anybody could ever get hurt. So I always say, listen, like, think about who you have in front of you, right? If this is an untrained 13 year old, you're probably going to have to be a little bit more creative if it's a 25 year old athlete who's been here seven years, like they don't need the, the full tutorial, like give them two words and see how it looks. Um, so the, the, our, our pro guys hate it when they get overcoached, um, because they've already been coached up. They're at that advanced level. So a lot of times it's just a subtle tanker on the fly. You never want to slow down the training process, but that's where you have to, you have to build rapport. You have to get through to people. And you know, like we talk about it, there are people that are you know, doing amazing things in this regard. Like Nick Winkleman on the coaching keys front has put some awesome stuff out there. Um, I love Brett Bartholomew's stuff um, with conscious coaching and what he's trying to do from like a, you know, career development standpoint for coaching. There's just there's a new industry that's popping up in terms of just how to communicate with athletes that I think is
0: very compelling. If I tie a few threads together and try and, I'll see if I can collect my thoughts. It's funny when I hear you talk about, hey, jump on, let's see what you've got, and then ninety nine percent. Right, and there's a 1% improvement, and you've got an instructor there that can change that. It makes me think about how many of us who don't have a professional coach who go to the gym and spend our time in the gym and are inefficient because we don't really understand the dynamics of an exercise. Yet we go in, we do it, but we're not being correct with what we're doing. So we're probably not maximizing. Because back in the day, if you went to a, a gym, chances are there'd be somebody walking the floor all the time, being able to not just spot you, but also correct something or help or answer a question. Today, it's 24-hour gyms. They're not staffed, so there's nobody in there. And if I take you back to what you said a few moments ago, there's a wonderful word that Mr. Foster taught you, which was chase academic challenges. It almost sounds to me that we may not be fortunate enough to have someone like you standing next to us, but then the resource that you put on YouTube, it's almost like we need to chase the academic challenge of saying, how do I do a pull down correctly? Let me study that and tutor myself. It's kind of, I guess the way things have changed over the years, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, you know, I, I often joke, you know, if we needed a contract written up, we hire a lawyer. If we need our taxes done. We hire an accountant, but if we need to get, you know, healthy and fit, we, we do it ourselves, you know? And I, and I, <laughs> You know, I don't want to. I don't want to overstate the importance of, of personal trainers in this world because, unfortunately, it's a very low barrier to entry industry. Um, but I do think there's something to be said. You know, about you know, our our body is our most precious commodity, right? You know, and you can do a lot of harm. Like you're, you, know, you can look at, in any, you know, Google search just for lawsuits against personal trainers for some of the dumb things that people do that to, to really hurt people and, and you know, not not just you know reduce their quality of life, but you know, create a really really negative. Um, kind of association with exercise. And that's a, that's a huge, huge problem. But I, I do think more people could use, you know, direction in that regard. Um, and unfortunately, walk in any commercial gym, you can, you can definitely see a, a collection of very bad techniques and all that stuff. So it's nice now that folks do have more opportunities to, to kind of do some self study online, similar to how you can go to, you know, you go to legal zoom and get a contract written up that's, you know, templated and things like that. Instead of maybe having to go and spend $600 with a lawyer. But, um, you know, some things are very complex. You know, a lot of people are symptomatic, whether it's a cranky shoulder or a bad low back or something along those lines. So um, I think it's it's all relative to the individual.
0: You have said that on the first day, say an intern starts with you, on the first day, you apply the 80-20 principle where you only talk for 20% of the session. I've never heard the 80-20 put into that context before. Just run that for us. Why do you do yeah. that? And how do you, how do, you do it?
1: Yeah. I, I think the first thing I I, I do is, you know, I, I make sure that people feel like they've been heard. You know, I think that's a really, really important thing that a lot of people don't ever appreciate is like, if you look at like what we experience with, um, you know, particularly if, if you think about the nature of professional baseball, um, it's, it, there's a lot of players and not many coaches. The support staff is not you know, awesome. So the ratio, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you what it is, but if you look at athletic trainers, skill coaches, strength conditioning coaches, you know, all those things, there's definitely way more players than there are coaches. So, invariably, what you have is you have, you know, very, very limited opportunities for interaction. So, you know, coaches may just bark orders and then actually never actually have an opportunity for players to give feedback. And, and when I've solicited feedback from our players over the years, one of the things that they've always wanted to, they've always reaffirmed every time I ask, and I do this on my own podcast, I always say, hey, what are the qualities? of the coaches who have been the most impactful for you and literally 90% of the time people say they're great communicators. They listen, they give me input on my career success and all that. So I want to feel like we're giving people those uh, platforms to be advocates for themselves because I know that if I'm teaching them to, to, you know, to be assertive in in our realm, then that, that same level of assertiveness can help them once they're, you know, back with their teams or in their colleges or whatever it is where they can kind of, you know, stand up for what they believe in, what's worked well for them. So I want to nurture that a lot. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, I, I have questions that I want answered because those are the things that are going to give me the insights I need in order to write good programs and all that. But at the same time, I'm never going to stop them if I feel like they're they're going a little bit off the reservation in terms of, you know, telling stories and all that. I, I want to nurture their ability to feel like they're at home and they can they can actually share whatever they want to share.
0: And you, you do share a lot of information. And I suspect that creative output's, require creative inputs. So you are taking a lot of stuff in from books, videos, scientific papers, other coaches, your interns, podcasts. How does Eric Cressy curate learnings with all, because you've you've been, it's been said you have an encyclopedic knowledge of exercise physiology. How do you curate your stuff, Eric? How do you keep it, line it up, find it again? What's your process? Yeah, I think it's,
1: it's definitely a moving target. Um, I'll say that I, I would say a, a huge chunk of what I do now um, is is auditory nature. So I'll listen to audiobooks, I'll listen to a lot of podcasts. But honestly, what I'll do more than anything is I'll call other coaches. That's one thing that's been very, very nice. Um, and this is actually, you know, Another John Barardi line is, you know, he answered a on a roundtable discussion at at Luca Hostovar's event in Seattle just recently. That, you know, he'll actually just, you know, if I have something I want to learn about, I'll I'll figure out who the expert is and I'll call and offer to pay them for their time so they can ask the specific questions I want. So I think I've gotten better at asking specific questions, and and leveraging my network when I want information. So you know, for me, I'll I want to learn about an elbow. I'll go call an elbow specialist and I'll sit in on a surgery and I'll ask the questions I want. You know selfishly that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. You know, I can ask experts the questions I want to ask and I can learn and um, and pick things up that way. You know, I, I'd say less than ever am I just sitting down and, and opening a, a book. You know, if I'm opening a book, it's gonna be much more on the training side of things. It's gonna be a textbook. You know I'm, I've got a, a book on my my desk sitting here right now. It's baseball sports medicine from Chris Ahmad and Anthony Romeo where you know, chapter seven is epicondylitis and baseball players, like really deep, you know, nerdy stuff. Um, whereas a lot more of my audio stuff tends to be more on the lines of business development, leadership, things along those lines. And and a couple of times a month I dig in really deep on PubMed where I'll just go and I'll type in sports medicine or baseball injuries or you know, something in particular and and dig really deep into that rabbit hole and read. You know eight to ten journal articles and, and you know figure out some of that new newer research so um it goes in a lot of different directions, but I'll tell you this the single most important part of my professional development is, has to do with having an awesome staff around me where you know when when for some reason there's a, a scenario where I have to refer out, I have physical therapists in both facilities, so I just you know basically walk across the room and say, "Hey, this guy's got this going on." Um, you know, we we get a chance to put our heads together to to take care of them, and then you know, also when we refer out to doctors, I I always read the, you know, the visit notes, you know, try to get post op reports, look at MRI findings, whatever I possibly can. You're you're never gonna get dumber from reading something, so I just try to take advantage of every bit of information that's available
0: to me. And if I talk about you having an awesome team around you, you said that you hire for fit, not for talent. What is the right fit? How would you describe the attributes of the right fit within your organization?
1: Yeah, so uh, there, there are a couple things I would say. So we, we hire based on competency and fit. I know that I can teach just about anybody what they need to be competent in this environment. Um, what I can't teach you is, is fit. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. Um, several years ago, uh, we had a, basically a, a player who was drafted um, he was a high riding pick um, by, by the Major League or, base- or A Major League Baseball organization. We hosted his draft party at our house. There were 120 people at my house. We hired caterers, the whole nine yards. There's, there's a bunch of food. On the first, like the second the food was ready, one of our interns at the time ran to the front of line and served himself first. You know, I'm like, you know, there's the old like mindset of leaders eat last and all this stuff, but like literally he was a, like a first week intern on the job. I'm like, that's something I can't fix. You know, I mean, if you're 24 years old and you don't know that, like, let the guests eat first. Like if that doesn't pop to the front of your brain, I'm not sure I can ever teach you that. So he might have been a wildly competent um, coach, but just from a fit standpoint, I'm like, this is a guy's always looking out for number one first. You know, and it's, it's something that's just stood out in my mind ever since. Every time his name comes up, um, and that, that's that's too bad because he actually would be super proficient on that side of things. But I know he wouldn't have ever been like a really great fit from a cultural standpoint. So what we actually do is we hire exclusively from our internship program, and the reason we hire from our internship program is because it's a three to five month kind of trial run where we know, Hey, we built them to a base level of competency where we know that they're going to you know, be in a great spot. But more importantly, we evaluate a, how do they fit with our team? You know, do they do our other coaches get along with them? How do they treat my office manager? You know, do they like have a spring in their step where they go up and they greet clients, at the door, they find out about clients, families, like, you know, how do they communicate with people? All those things. And we also look at a growth mindset. It's right? So, gross mindset for me is a, is a big part of how, um, how we evaluate fit. Like, you know, do they fail forward? Meaning if there's a time where we have to give them constructive feedback, do they eat it up and and make big improvements or do they internalize it and they, they shy away from that feedback or do they, you know, even worse, like where do they butt heads with us and say, no, you're wrong. Like that's, that's a a really, really big challenge. So we want to know that we have people who a mesh really, really well with our environment and that B are open to the ideas of improving and they realize that you know that these subtle failures that you're gonna encounter all the time on the job are gonna be things that, you know, basically make you better long term. And so embrace those struggles. Um but you're you're always gonna be able to train competency. It's it's fit that's the
0: problem. I interviewed a friend of yours, Jay Ferugia on the show not that long ago. And one of the questions I asked him was how his ideals of working out and strength have changed over the years. And his reply was that he now asks himself, what's the biological cost of his workout? Which I think for a lot of us is a is a great question to ask. And I mean, being a guy who's at the top of his game and he's a good friend of yours, is that is that a question that sits in your mind as well? That when you are designing and or working out, what's the biological cost of the workout to you?
1: No doubt about it. Um, and if you're not asking that question and you're training professional athletes, you're you're terrible at your job. You know, Jay's, Jay's certainly speaking to it in the context of, mm, you yeah. know, quality of life, right? He's at the age now where he doesn't care if he can rack full 800 pounds or whether he has traps that touch his ears. He's worried <laughs> about like, hey, am I going to live a long life? Am I going to be able to, you know, do everything I want to do and, in and, and that side of things. And I respect that a ton. Frankly, I'm, I'm probably at a point where I'm transitioning to that a little bit more. I'm still kind of riding two horses, one saddle with a, a moderately still alive powerlifting career. And I still really enjoy lifting really, really heavy, but I know that there are you know, there are certainly biological factors in play right there. Like there's you know, only so long that you can lift really, really heavy before your joints kind of start to give And I think there's the old saying, like, I think it was another Dan John quote, like, in your 20s, you Olympic lift, in your 30s, you power lift, in your 40s, in your body, you bodybuild, and in your 50s, you do whatever doesn't hurt. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there's something to be said about that. Um, but in the context of dealing with our professional athletes, we want to make sure that if they're going to use up their bullets, they're doing it in their sport. The last thing I want to do is just train guys to be weight room rock stars and you know put them in harm's way like everything that we do in the gym should should improve their you know their 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 performance on the field they should reduce their risk of injury and it should improve their quality of life um so I always try to answer those questions and frankly I was not good at that early in my career you know I think a lot of times you if you're a carpenter only has a hammer everything really starts looking like a nail so my background was obviously power so Lifting really, really heavy stuff was obviously the the best way to pe- make people better, and and certainly for some people, you know, lifting heavy stuff is very, very important. But it's not, you know, the only thing out there. And there are a lot of other qualities that you need to optimize. And you know, I've been fortunate to get around good people. Obviously, Jay's one of them who have who have made that shift over the course of time. And I'm 38 years old, so I'm starting to have those, you know, those questions: is it is it, is it really worthwhile for me to deadlift 600 on a monthly basis and do things like that? So. There, there isn't an easy answer, but it's very context-dependent on you know, how old you are and what your long-term uh, strategies are going to be.
0: With that long-term strategy in mind, Eric, uh, it, you'd be hard-pressed walking through any gym anywhere in the world right now and not seeing somebody sit on a machine checking their socials and spending time just scrolling. Distractions in the gym whilst you're in the gym, what's the real cost?
1: No, there's a cost. I mean, there's maybe an opportunity cost. Like, could you be working substantially harder? Um, but here's the thing I'll say, and, and this is going to sound, I don't want it to sound condescending, but I'm not sure how I can say it without it. Here's what I'll tell you is uh, I've been in some of the really like awesome powerlifting gyms on the planet. Right. I've been in, in high level college weight rooms. I've been in, in professional sports, you know, weight training contexts. but I've been in like in a scenario in like a powerlifting gym where I was like a legit, like 163 pound guy who rolled out of bed every Sunday morning and went in and trained with 900 pound squatters. Like where I was, you know, basically surrounded by people who are way, way stronger than me. Like where it was basically like, if you don't show up, work your butt off load plates, you might get eaten. Um, and, and what I can tell you is being around that, like it takes a special, like you got to be able to go to a really, really dark place before you put that much weight on your back. Or when you step up to a bar and try to pick up 650 pounds, like when you're 165 pounds. And what I'll tell you is like, you know, like I've sniffed some, some true 10 workouts in my life. You know, I'm, I'm pretty darn happy when I get in a good seven or an eight. What I tell you is in the general population, most people have never found a five like when we look at what people go through just because they have so many distractions and if you spend a lot of time at, at sixes and sevens in your training career and you you float in some some eights and nines and you know occasionally you have you know a day where you're you're sick and you just check some boxes and you you do a three or a four it all tends to work out in the wash but that's one of the things that I realize is having consistent training like I know that even on my worst day I can come in here and I can pull 500 for 5 on a deadlift And get a training effect, not leave in pain, all that stuff. And it's because I've I've put in the time. So I think if there's a lesson to a lot of like the gym goers on here, like don't be stupid with your exercise selection and don't be stupid with your technique, but find a way to sniff those those higher intensities, those those challenges. And if you're someone who's like, you know, really just more interested in like the general fitness aspect of of things, like find some way to do something where you strain once a week. Lift something heavy find something that makes you do something fast so have a speed and then find something that makes you sweat some kind of conditioning you do those three things so so speed strain and sweat like you're probably long term going to have some really good fitness initiatives on your on your on your side you're going to have work capacity you're going to have a foundation of strength and then you're going to have power that's going to you know support you well into old age so you know the question just becomes how do we play that around right you know if we're talking about you know straining you know for some people that's a bench pressing 135 pounds or it's doing a set of six push-ups if you couldn't do them right or you know for some people strength literally might be like doing walking lunges with 30 pound dumbbells right it's not you know magnificent to anybody on instagram or anything like that but it it could be something that pushes that that needle a little bit higher on the strength side of things you know for other people like you know conditioning like I, I can make myself really miserable on a versa climber and get absolutely thrashed for other people that's a that's a walk you know, where they actually are, are getting their heart rate up. And, you know, for other people, speed might be, you know, sprinting at, at full tilt. And that's what I still like to do. But I also know that's not appropriate for our adult client who's got an Achilles tendinopathy. Maybe they're better off doing some kettlebell swings or throwing the med ball. So you, just, you can scale all those things. But if you check those three boxes on a weekly basis, from a long term health standpoint, you're going to be in a pretty good place.
0: Just on that, if we can expand that point for a bit. Eric, you said that I've heard you say it a few times. People don't do well when we drink from the fire hose. Relate that back to our wellness.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great point. I, I think um, you know maybe where people make the biggest mistake is they, they try to ride too many horses with one saddle. We joke my staff would probably call that a cressyism, something I say <laughs> too much. But you know, I, I think if you try to uh, to chase too many different initiatives, you're probably in a bad space. What what I mean with that though is you know when you're when you're new to exercise you can you can improve everything right and and usually the the two lowest hanging fruits for for untrained individuals are going to be aerobic capacity and and maximal strength, right? You can get strong really quickly from neurological mechanisms even before cross-sectional area really starts happening. And work capacity is, is very easy to develop. Like, go out and do some light aerobic work, and you're going to get some of those adaptations that you know allow you to bounce back between sets. They allow you to bounce back between sessions. Um, you know, I think where people get into a little bit more of a tricky place is once they do have that foundation of strength, all of a sudden they're trying to become... You know, insanely highly conditioned anaerobically. They're trying to be, you know, competitive power lifters. They're trying to be Olympic lifters. They're trying to be awesome in some sport. So, all of a sudden, they just wind up becoming really mediocre at, at once. So understanding how to, how to prioritize certain fitness qualities throughout the year are really, really important, you know, particularly when you're trying to, you know, to distribute stress accordingly. right? You just, most people in their you know, 40s can't just go in an Olympic lift year-round. They probably need some breaks from it unless they've got a really, really pristine technique and have built an insane amount of work capacity to get to that point.
0: You seem like the type of guy that if you were coaching somebody, you are completely with them. And you are looking to learn from them as much as you are to impart information. And I'm just curious, what's a leadership lesson that you have actually taken from one of your clients that you've implemented into your world that's had a profound impact on your success?
1: I'll give you, I'll give you actually a good one. Um, and it, he's, he's kind of a client. It's our landlord um, at our Massachusetts facility, Jim's a great guy. He's in his eighties. And really it's been supportive of us. And he, he said to me one day, he's like, remember your clients hire and fire you every day. Um, and it was something that really, really stuck out with me, um, was that like, nobody cares if you're having a bad day. Like, and, and that's something that I, I, I feel like if, if, if you really want to talk about competitive advantage, yes, we can talk about like how well I know the shoulder or you know, our synergy or our network or the analytics we do and all that stuff with respect to baseball. But, right. But I think the biggest thing is that I don't want our clients to know when I'm having a bad day. Like I always want to put a happy face on. I always want to feel like, um, they're getting access to the expertise that they're getting the time of day that they deserve. Um, they're getting the attention to the detail that, you know, that we've really worked hard to to you know, create as a standard of excellence, um, and, and I, I don't think you're allowed to have bad days when you're in an entrepreneurship, and I don't think you should be allowed to have bad days really in any, you know, scenario where you're providing a service. Um, but it, it's different when you're you're talking about being the owner of the business versus being an employee of the business. Like as an owner, I can never expect my employees to care about my business as much as I do. Like that that will absolutely never happen. You know, the people who are obviously closest to that are my wife, my business partner. Like they're 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 at that level, right, where they. You know, they're kind of on the same level, but I, I can't expect a you know an hourly employee or someone who's on salary to just automatically appreciate that. But you know the goal is to not have bad days. Nobody cares if your life is tough. Nobody cares if your knee hurts. Nobody cares about anything else. They care about what you can do for them, and you need to show that every single day.
0: Just to finish us up, Eric, because I'm conscious of your time. A few months back, I interviewed a guy called James Kerr, and he wrote a book called Legacy. And it is- Amazing book. Amazing book, a cracking book, a must read for all of us. And he's he's a guy who just does not waste a word. And he's got such, such a depth of stories and knowledge. And the book as- Eric is going to tell you in a minute is all about going behind the curtain of the world's most winningest team, uh, called the All Blacks, who played rugby with an eighty percent winning record over one hundred years. It's a book that you have at the top of your list to recommend as a read for people. I'm curious, you love the book. If there was, and it's a great book about culture and leadership and ownership and performance. What's the one lesson that you took from Legacy that you've implemented that has had a big, big impact on you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, what I would always say is, it's actually one of the first ones in that book. It's the sweep the sheds, right? You're you're never too big for anything, um, and and that's a that's a hard lesson I think for a lot of entrepreneurs to appreciate. Um, you know what that means is that it's it's very very compelling. Uh, you know, to say like, "Hey, I'm going to go vacuum the floor of the facility with my staff tonight," and all of a sudden, they're going to realize that I'm working really, really hard with them. Um, and and certainly, there there are times to do that. What I'd also know is that if I vacuum the facility every night with our with our athletes, or sorry, with our our staff, that our, I can't play the visionary role that I need for this business to grow and be successful. So you, you have to have stratifications, and you, you never have to feel like you're above, um, you know, a job. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are, there are times when you know, you can step in and contribute on that. But when I, when I heard that sweep the sheds, you know, kind of approach, what I think the bigger lesson is, is, is never make your problem somebody else's, right? Yes, no job was beneath the All Blacks. They took care of their own locker rooms. But more importantly, they viewed it more as if we leave this locker room a mess, then someone else has to clean it up. And I think that's the problem is when you're in entrepreneurship, there's nobody to clean up for you. Like if, if you don't do your job, you got a business. Like it's, it's very simple. And and frankly, if you don't do your job and someone even does try to do it, they're probably not going to do it as well as you do. Um, so there is a time in entrepreneurship, right or wrong, where you're going to have to take the never mind, I'll just do it mindset. Um, and, and those are the people that we try to like really try to nurture, right? is the people who never want to pass the buck and make their problems into somebody else. And that comes back to the competency versus fit stuff.
0: It is a great book for all of us. Put it on the top of your list, read it put it down and then read it again. Um, One final question for you, Eric, that as I said earlier in the show, you have a reputation of, and this is a quote, an encyclopedic knowledge of gyms and strength training. In the last three years with all you know, and all you've done, how have your ideals of the industry changed?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, certainly I have perspectives on maybe the training aspect of things that have evolved, no doubt about it, in the direction that I think we've gone. But from a, from a pure, uh, you know, kind of like industry perspective on the business side of things, that's an interesting one. I, I think I would say on the whole, things have gotten much more specialized. Um, I know that, you know, just being in our baseball niche, it's hard to compete with what we do if you don't understand skill development, right? So in the past, you could be a strength and conditioning facility that trained baseball players and you could you could you could do really, really well. Nowadays you actually have to understand how what you do from a strength and conditioning standpoint fits into the analytics side of things, which fits into the skill development side of things. They're, they're very, very integrated, so that the developmental aspect of the industry is very, very specialized. Um, so I think that's the, maybe the, the first thing that, that I would say, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that athletes tend to be more specialized than ever. Whether it's right or wrong, that's, that, that is what it is. Um, so I think that's, that's one component of the industry that I think is, is pretty interesting. I'll, I'll say the other thing that I'm, I'm very intrigued to watch I don't know if this is necessarily a, a true industry trend, but it's, it's something that, that's worth looking at. And I, I actually talked about this a couple of years ago at our, our fall seminar um, with a, a topic of forecasting fitness. Um, one of the things I'm actually very curious to see is, is how the college bubble in the United States, burst. Um, I know you guys are international, so I can't speak to where it is elsewhere. But if you look at the you know the average cost of consumer goods in the United States, it you know it goes up by two to three percent per year, pretty consistently. If you look at college tuition and fees, it goes up by about twelve percent. So it's it's outpacing it by like four times over. Um, to the point that I actually met with our financial advisor, and he told us that our when our four almost five year old daughters turn eighteen and go off to college, I should plan on about five hundred ninety seven thousand dollars each for a four-year university, assuming a private education. And when I heard that, I, there, there, there are many thoughts that go through my head. The first is I'd rather give them each $200,000 to put in the stock market, buy them a Lamborghini, and then send them to community college. Um, so that's the first one. But the second part of it is, you know, is is I'm immediately thinking, like, when does this bubble burst? Because in the context of our industry, if you go and you get an exercise science degree right now, you're probably paying I mean, depending on where you go to school, it could be $80,000. It could be, you know, $600,000. Who knows? Um, it depends on the quality of of education you're getting and what institution you you choose and whether you have, you know, you live at home or you have to get a rental in New York City, whatever it may be. And the problem is in our industry, if you get an exercise science degree, it doesn't make you more qualified than the dude who just spent 300 bucks on a weekend certification. It makes you zero. It gives you zero competitive advantage um, it's just it's a lateral move that costs you a half a million dollars and you know, that doesn't even include the opportunity cost of you know what you would be making if you're actually in the working world so I'm very curious to see a does this college bubble burst b do people realize that ninety nine percent of the exercise program science programs out there are complete scams um, because the it just it's not sustainable over the long haul so I'll be honest with you, this past weekend. Um, we hosted our fall seminar in Massachusetts, and, and we actually host our business mentorship right afterwards. In a matter of two days, I talked to separate people out of master's degrees in exercise science. Um, they were both people working in the private sector. They had no expectations of going into college or professional sports where a master's degree would be preferred on a job application. The, the, you know, if you're going to go do that, do it because... It's going to give you some credential or some kind of educational experience that will better prepare you for the world. And, and honestly, I can't tell you that there's a single university in the United States that delivers that education cost effectively enough where it outweighs saying, "Hey, set aside five grand a year, go do a mentorship." you know, at Todd Durkin's facility and then go to Exos and do an internship there, come to CSP, do an internship with us, take Mike Boyle's functional strength coach, you know, certification, like you can do it so much more cost effectively on your own than you can with an academic curriculum that mandates that you do a bunch of, you know, core curriculum stuff and that you just delve into stuff that only loosely relates to what you're actually going to do. So there's a, a very loaded answer for you. Um, Probably just talked a few people out of going back to college uh, for exercise <laughs> time. Hopefully I just saved a few of your listeners a, a quarter million dollars or something. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so some cash. Eric, this has been terrific. I, When your name came through as a possible guest on the show, you're a guy that your reputation does precede you and it's been a complete honor to spend time with you here on the show. For those people who want to follow up Um, want to come and get education from you where's the best hub to find you
1: yeah absolutely Um, I'm easy on social media it's at Eric Cressy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, you can find me. And then the website, which is kind of my hub for the newsletter, the podcast, and the blog, is um, it's just ericcressy.com. ericcress dot com.
0: Thank you so much for giving us your time, your wisdom, your knowledge, and being so honest in your sharing mode. It's just been uh, it's been terrific. I appreciate you guys having me. Really uh, had a good time. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks ahead on the Inspiring Lives podcast. All the show notes you'll find at athleticgreens.com. In the weeks ahead on Inspiring Lives, we'll sit down with many more outstanding performers who will all share their recipe for how we can live our own inspiring life. That's next time on the Inspiring Lives podcast. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.